If you got your Bibles this morning, let's turn to Genesis chapter 2. And we're going to be finishing up that chapter today. And we're going to be looking at verses 18 through 25. The title of our lesson is The Creation of Woman. As I said last week, God's most beautiful, wonderful, graceful, aggravating. Oh, I'm sorry. I got, I got carried away right there for just a just a second. The creation of woman. Let's begin in, in verse 18. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. So here we have, as we've been going through Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2, we've heard God say several times, it was good, it was good, it was good. In fact, at the end of day 6, we hear it's very good. But here's the first time that we actually hear God say something is not good. And by the way, that's his own opinion. He says it. Um, Now, it's not, he's not saying it's evil for the man to be alone. He's not even saying it's bad for the man to be alone. And basically what he's saying, it's, it's incomplete. It's unfinished. And that's what makes it not good. In fact, there are two reasons that he says it's not good. Number one, Man alone cannot fulfill what God has planned for mankind. For for example, we know God wants man to fill the earth and subdue it. Adam can't do that by himself, obviously, right? So uh, that's one reason. Number two, as we've said several times up to now, man is created in the image of God. God himself has never not been in a relationship with with the Son and the Holy Spirit. He's always existed as a triune God. We're made in His image, therefore we are made for relationships. We are made for uh, companionship. And so again, without that, it would not be good. Now, so God says it's not good for man to be alone. I'm going to make a helper fit for him. Now, I think it's worth looking at those two words, the word helper and the word fit, so we can understand the relationship of the woman to the man. The word helper is the Hebrew word ezer, and it basically means exactly what it says, a helper, but it is not a demeaning term in the Hebrew in any way. She's not created to be his maid. She's not created to be his, his slave. In fact, the same word is used throughout the Old Testament to describe God. For example, Psalms 115 says, God is our Helper, God is our azir. It's the same exact word being used for the woman and the man. So it's it's obviously when it says God is our helper, it's not saying God is our slave or God is our maid or it's not demeaning in any way. Okay, so we make sure we don't see it that way. The other word, which I think is really interesting, God says, I want to make a helper fit or suitable for him. That word is konegdao in the Hebrew. And it literally means according to the opposite of him. And I just think that is so revealing. I'm going to make him a helper according to the opposite of him. In other words, uh, Eve is not created to be above Adam. She's not created to be below Adam. She's created to be, to fill in the holes, to feed according to the opposite of him. What he lacks, she is going to provide. Okay, so she is complementary. She, she makes him better. She enhances him. She, all of those kind of things. I think that's a really, really good, good term there. Now, I want to stop right here because we're going to learn a, hopefully learn a really big lesson today before we get out of here. 
before we get out of Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, we've only gone two chapters into the entire Bible, we see three, we are going to see three great biblical doctrines. I mean three huge biblical doctrines that are going to be taught throughout the whole Bible, but they are birthed right here in the very first two chapters, okay? The first one, of course, obviously, is creationism. This is the belief that the universe and everything in the universe, all living organisms, are created by divine intervention, just as it says inside the Genesis account. In the beginning, God created It's not evolution, it's not some natural process, it's not random chance or anything like that. It's it's God himself creating the universe and everything in it. That is the biblical doctrine of creationism. And that is obviously evident in the first two chapters. The second great biblical doctrine that we see is a big word, and it's called complementarianism. Complementarianism. This is the belief that men and women are equal in nature, but yet by they, we are God-ordained to have different roles or different responsibilities in our marriage, in our families, and even within the church. Okay, let me say that again. That's called a big word. It's called complementarianism. It says we are absolutely equal in nature. We're equal in value, but God has asked us to fulfill different roles, not only in our marriages, uh, in our in our family lives, but also in church leadership, and that's going to be uh, birthed or, or introduced right here in in Genesis two. So what we see is before the fall. You remember I said last week it's always interesting to see what happened before the fall, and to see what happened after the fall. And here we have before the fall, before sin enters the picture, God creates the woman as a helper to the man. Now what this tells us is that distinctions or roles based on gender, on gender are part of God's perfect design. It's not something that came with sin. It's not something that came with the curse. It's part of God's perfect design. Now, you may say to me, well now, Derek, that's a lot to get out of one word, helper. Is there any other evidence in these two chapters that God actually created these these different roles of authority and submission for Adam and Eve in just these first two chapters before the fall? I'm glad you asked that question. There is. The first one is the order of creation. You see, we live in a society today where order of, of birth doesn't matter anymore. Right? I mean, we, our kids are born one, two, three. You know, the old thing where the firstborn son always inherits everything the father has. That, we don't really go by that much anymore. And there may be some pockets here and there. But for the most part, that doesn't really matter. Gender doesn't really matter. So firstborn son, firstborn daughter, not, not a big deal for us anymore. But in that day, it was a very big deal. In fact, if you go to the New Testament, Paul writes to Timothy. And he's explaining to Timothy why in the church men should be pastors and not women. And his reasoning is not cultural or anything like that. His reasoning is this, for Adam was created first, then Eve. So order, birth order, creation order meant a lot. It did. In fact, it has for the majority of history, in fact, up to modern times. Another thing, and we're going to see this more in chapter 3, is the order of accountability. It's a funny thing, Eve actually eats of the fruit, as we all know, 
And God comes down, and who does he go to? Adam. Doesn't go to Eve. In fact, as far as I can tell, and I'm not positive about this, I need to study a little more, but before the fall, we have no record of God telling Eve anything. He's talking to Adam. Adam, I'm telling you. You tell your wife. You, you, you're responsible. Therefore, when God comes, he goes straight to Adam. Adam, I need to talk to you. I've said this before to men. If God were to, Jesus were to walk up to your house and knock on the door, he wants to talk to you. He's going he's gonna to go to you. Are you being the head of your house? Are you leading your family? You are accountable as, as a man, just as Adam was accountable in the garden. Number three, man's naming of woman. You remember in chapter one, I told you that in, in ancient cultures, naming was important. If you named something that showed that you had, um, uh, uh, it, it signified your authority over that thing, right? We name our children. We don't wait till our children get old enough and say, hey, what do you, what do you think? Your name ought to be. We name them, right? It signifies our, our authority over them. By the way, in the first chapter of Genesis, God says, called the first, called the light what? Day. He called the, the dark night. He called the big light in the sky the sun. He called the, the lesser light the moon. God names all those because it signifies his authority over them. But yet, when it comes time to name the animals, who does it? Adam. Because he told him, you subdue the earth. You rule the earth. So he brings all the animals before and says, you name them. Because you're going to have... So, so naming has this, this, this idea of authority. Well, we also see, and we'll see this in Genesis 2.23 a little bit later, Adam calls her woman. And later on in chapter 3, he'll give her the name Eve. That's a big deal in ancient cultures. For us, we don't think about it too much, but that signifies authority. Number four, and we're going to talk about this a lot more in chapter three. God sets an authority up. It's God, then man, then woman. Satan comes into the garden and he completely subverts God's authority or he he subverts God's established order. He goes to the woman and then the woman goes to the man. It's a completely opposite of what God would, would, would want. In fact, we'll start seeing that next week when we get into chapter 3. Paul goes on in 1 Corinthians 11 and says this, But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. So, so Paul kind of summarizes it here in chapter 11. By the way, Paul goes on in that same chapter and says this, Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man independent of woman. In other words, God has designed it so that we need each other. Right? She, the woman is the, is the opposite, the, according to the opposite. We are equal in God's eyes. Equal value. We both have access to Him. Uh, absolutely equal. But yet our roles are different. We have distinct roles to fill. And we'll talk about that a little bit more. Now, before God creates this helper, he has something for Adam to do. Look at verses 19 through 20. Now, out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heaven and to every beast of the field. Now here we're given another detail about the animals that we didn't have in chapter 1. It says that God formed them 
of the dust of the ground, just like he did Adam. And he brings them to Adam to name. Now, listen, we have said over and over that we are talking about real, true 24-hour days. Remember, we, we've, we've covered all this. But a lot of skeptics would say, whoa, whoa, wait just one second. How in the world could Adam name all of those animals in 24 hours? You see, the fact is, if, if I went back to, if the latest I could find was 2011. As of 2011, scientists estimate there are 8.7 million species on the earth. Now, if you just assumed Adam had 24 hours, which by the way, he did not, because the animals were created first, he didn't come along till later in the day. If you just assume, for sake of argument, let's give him 24 hours, 8.7 million divided by 24 is 362,500 per hour. That's over 6,000 per minute, which would be 101 every second. So, I mean, Adam's good, but he ain't that good, right? He ain't naming 101 animals every single second. So skeptics will point and say, see that? That's impossible. There's no way he could do that. Well, a couple things they overlook. First of all, just so we're clear, Adam didn't have to go round them up. He didn't have to go track them down. The Bible tells us clearly that God brought them to him. The second thing is, all those skeptics say that this number would be in the millions. It wouldn't have been anywhere close to that. And here's why. First of all, I want you to notice the scripture. God, it says Adam names livestock, birds, and beasts. No fish, no creeping things, okay? So, so God's not bringing fish to Adam. Evidently, they wouldn't have survived the trip. I don't know why he, why he didn't do it, but he did not bring to fish. So anything in the sea, he didn't have to name. He also didn't have to name any creeping things. So there's no insects, no, you remember the Hebrew says creeping things would even be things like moles and rabbits and mice. He doesn't have to name any of those types of things either. Or, or we could look at it another way. Of all the species in the world, 98% of them are called are vertebrates, which means they have a backbone. Or they don't have a backbone. I'll get it right. So things like sponges, worms, jellyfish, clams, oysters, uh, a lot of insects don't have backbones. So 98% of them would be off the... Just take them off the table. He, uh, Adam wouldn't have had to deal with them. Of the remaining 2%, things like mammals, birds, reptiles, amphibians, and fish... Adam would have only had to look at 2% of them, but again, you have to take out all the amphibians, all the fish, things like that go away. So he doesn't have to deal with any of those types of issues or any of those types of animals. But we also have to assume in that day that there would have been far fewer species than there are today. For example, in the very beginning, there are no lions, tigers, cheetahs, cougars. There's just a cat. There's one feline species. They all come from that down through the, through the years. So he doesn't have to name all of those. He just has to name, oh, that's a cat, or whatever he decided to, decided to call those. It's far more likely, when you look at it, that Adam only had to name a couple of thousand of what we call these proto-species, and he could have done that fairly easily. I did a little bit of math. Um, if, if, let's just say there was 2,500 species. He could have done one every five seconds, he could have done it in three hours and 45 minutes, and that's given him a five-minute break to catch his breath at, at the end of every hour. Okay? So, again, this is easily doable. Um, you know, if, if we did it one every 10 seconds, it would take him, you know, take him a little bit longer, but it's easily doable. Keep in mind, folks, by the way, Adam is smart. He's Einstein plus smart. 
Sin has not entered the world yet. It hasn't corrupted his mind. The, the decay hasn't started yet. I mean, he is, he is a smart, smart, intelligent human being. So he's got the mental capacity to do it as well as having the time to get the job done. Look at the end of verse 20. It says, But for Adam there was no helper found or fit for him. Now, here's a question. I, I tell you guys this all the time. When I read these things, I, I ask questions. And the first thing that qu- popped to me is, was God really looking for a helper? He, he, he says, he brings all these animals by, by Adam, and at the end he says, I couldn't find a helper. Is that what he was really doing? Is he really looking for a helper? Well, of course not. He, he knows that none of these animals are going to be a, the type of helper that, that Adam needs. What he's trying to do is give Adam an object lesson. You see, as Adam is sitting there and all these animals are, are, are lined up and they're coming by, one of the first things he would notice is every one of them exists in pairs. Every one of them has a male and a female. Everyone has a kind that's, that's like it, right? And, and, and as they go by, he would notice none of these are like me. None of these are the same nature as me. I don't feel any kinship with, with any of these animals. And you see, that's exactly what God wanted him to do. He wanted him to feel the need for a wife. So that by the time he's done, he wants Adam to be thinking, well, where's mine? Where's the one like, like, like me? Look at verse 21. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, he took one of his ribs and he closed up its place with flesh. Now we know, according to Gen- Genesis 127, that the woman is also made in the image of God, exactly like the man is. You can go back and read that in chapter 1. The only difference between Adam and Eve is that Adam is made out of dirt and Eve is made out of Adam, right? Now, here's a question I got. Why did he do it that way? He formed the animals out of the dirt. He formed Adam out of the dirt. Why can't he, why didn't he just form Eve out of the dirt? Why did he go to the extra step of putting Adam to sleep, reaching into his side, and pulling out a part of him to, to make Eve? Why did he do that? Well, fortunately for us, we have what I call New Testament hindsight. Ephesians 5, 28 through 29 says this, In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one has ever hated his own body, but feeds it and takes care of it, just as Christ also does the church. You see, what we can see here is God wanted Adam to see, she's not just another creature, she's part of you. This is different. This isn't like anything else. This, this comes right out of you. And he wanted Adam to, to feel that for her, to, to see that in her, to protect her, to love her not just as another creation, but as a very part of him. And by the way, it's exactly how every husband should feel about their wife today. She is one with me. She's part of me. I will love her and cherish her and protect her. That's what he wanted Adam to feel. And so God puts him to sleep, takes out one of his ribs or part of his side, and as I said, creates the most beautiful thing he has ever created. Look at verse 22. And the rib the God, Lord God had taken from the man he made, that word means fashioned or built into a woman and brought her to the man. Here you, the scripture is, is picturing God as a sculptor and he's taking this, this piece of rib and he's creating and he's forming and he's fashioning into a creature uh, that would meet Adam's need. And then God becomes the first father to give away the bride. 
and he brings her to Adam, and he gives her to him. Now, Adam is absolutely ready. Look at verse 23. Then the man said, this at last. If you actually go read the Hebrew commentaries, it says the English is understated. That there literally should be... I mean, he is... A, in other words, if you put it in English, Adam would say, now that's what I'm talking about right there. <laughs> right? He's seen all them animals and he sees that. Bam! That's what I'm talking about, God. Finally. That's at last. Woo! You know, he is, he is fired up, right? In fact, he's so fired up that he burst into poetry. In fact, Hebrew scholars tell us that these words are the first form of poetry that we ever hear spoken. This is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. I mean, now, how many times has that happened? How many poems have been written by men for women or, or songs? By the way, I myself, have I not, Scooter? I have written a poem for my wife. Scooter has read it and says it is at the top of literature to him. <laughs> Kathy, on the other hand, she didn't care much for it at all. So uh, maybe one day I'll, I'll bring it and, uh, and let you uh, read it. So finally, Adam, he, he's got this woman right, and he's got one more thing he needs to name, and that's her. And so he finishes his work of naming. He says, she shall be called woman because she's taken out of man. The Hebrew word for man is ish. The Hebrew word for woman is isha. So it's just very two similar sounding words. Ish and isha because she's taken out of man. And then finally, at the end of the chapter, we get a word from the Creator Himself. And what He's about to let us know is that what He's done with Adam and Eve isn't a one-time thing. But he's about to give us his intentions for men and women down throughout history. Look at verse 24. Therefore, he says, do you see all this I've done? Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother. By the way, that is not Adam. Adam does not have a father. Adam does not have a mother. That's not Adam. That is every single man that will come after Adam. So what he's saying here is what I've done sets a pattern or precedent for all, all of recorded history. After this, every man, or not, obviously not every man, but that's the plan, the precedent is for a man to leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. Notice it's wife, not wives. And they shall become one flesh. Now I said earlier there are three great doctrines in Genesis 1 and 2. The first one, of course, was creationism. The second one was complementarianism, if I can say it. The third one is marriage. This is the belief that God instituted marriage as a union between one man, one woman, one flesh for life. And it's right here in Genesis chapter 2. For, and, and God said, this is the way it should be down throughout history. In other words, God has said, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. This is His plan for how they will do that. This is how they will be fruitful. This is how they will multiply. They will do it through marriage. And marriage is defined as one man, one woman for life. And in the creation of marriage, by the way, we'll talk about this as we get into chapter 3, you have the very definition of sexual conduct because he is limited to marriage. Everything outside of that, adultery, polygamy, 
um, uh, uh, fornication, all these other things, homosexuality, they are all outside the bounds of, of marriage. Now, of course, sin is going to change all that. One of the interesting things about Genesis, before you can even get out of Genesis, you've got polygamy in chapter 4, adultery in chapter 16, homosexuality in chapter 19, fornication in 34, incest and prostitution in 38. Let me tell you, when it goes down, it goes down fast. Can't even get out of Genesis and the whole world is blown up. But here we are in chapter 2 and it's perfect. It's absolutely perfect. Finally, the chapter closes with a very interesting statement. And the man and his wife were both naked, and they were not ashamed. Now, why would he, why would he throw that in there? Well, think about this. Why were they not ashamed? Well, first of all, if you look at the definition of shame, it's a feeling of, of humiliation or distress caused by the fact or the consciousness that you did something wrong, right? That's, that's what shame is. But at this point, they, they got no idea. of This ain't even in their... It's not even in the scope of their thinking. They don't understand wrong. They, they, don't, they have no concept of evil behavior or bad behavior. I mean, how could they feel any, any shame? They don't know at this point that sexual desire can be twisted and turned into something just, just bad. They, they don't have any idea their bodies can, can be misused in, a, in an evil way. They don't have any weird thoughts running through their minds and, 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 you know, lustful. They don't have any of that stuff going on. I mean, when you think about it, there was such beauty in what they had. Think about a man and a woman and there's no shame. There's no regret. There's no envy. There's no jealousy. There's no bitterness. There's no one-upmanship. There's none of this. I'm going to get my way. You're going to get your. There's none of that stuff. It is absolutely perfect without any shame. In fact, they had the thing that I think we all want. I mean, isn't that what every man and every woman would be striving for and looking for? They had it, and they absolutely threw it all away. Now, we come to the end of chapter 2, and I've got to, I want to take, run down a rabbit trail for just a minute. As I said, as we close out the second chapter, Two chapters into the Bible, you've got three great doctrines. You've got creationism, marriage, and complementarianism, the roles of men and women. We have a God who created us to exist in relationship with Him. And He ordained that we should fill the earth, multiply and subdue the earth through, the, um, uh, through marriage. And He ordained that in our marriage and in our family lives and in our church, we should fill specific roles based on our Gender. He, did, he does all of this in the very first two chapters of the Bible. You see, it is these three great doctrines that should form a Christian worldview. In fact, as a man, as a Christian man, I believe God created me and He's going to judge me one day. As a Christian man who's married, I, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a husband and I'm a father, and I am ruled by these doctrines, right? Let me back up here. I'm ruled. Everybody with me? They steer me. They, they guide my every uh, decision as a man. I, I know I'm called to do certain things. They, they, they form my worldview. And because of those three doctrines are so important, those three doctrines are under an unrelenting attack in our culture today. Now you think about it. What are the three doctrines that are under attack in this world today? Creationism, marriage, 
and complementarianism. The devil hates them. He wants them torn down because they glorify God. They exalt God. God ordained these three things. And so creationism is under, under attack by evolution and theistic evolution and the day-age theory and the gap theory and all of that stuff. Marriage, I mean, come on. Has there ever been a day where marriage, the, the, the belief that one man, one woman, one flesh for life is under attack like never before? And of course, complementarianism. It, it, even within our churches, we're seeing feminism come against, say, no, women can do this, women can do this, women can do... It's just under unrelenting attack. Because they are our Christian worldview. And if they fall, there's a lot of stuff falls with it. Now, three great doctrines. And you and I can choose to believe these or not. That's up to you. I can't make you believe any of these. But I want to tell you a story with a few minutes i got left. And I want to show you what will happen if you choose not to believe one of those three great doctrines. Not what might happen, but absolutely what will happen. I read an article a few weeks ago. I sent it to a couple of people. It made a big impact on me. It was called Portrait of a Theological Disaster. It was written by Albert Moeller, who used to be the president of the Southern Baptist Convention. And I had never heard this story and so when I saw it, I, I went and I read it, and I, like I said, I passed it to a couple of people. And I'm going to summarize. If you want to Google it, go back and just Google Albert Moeller Portrait of Theological. You'll, it'll pop up the article, and, and you can and you can uh, you can read that. Here's the story. In the late '80s, early '90s, there were some Southern Baptist churches uh, around the country, mainly in big cities, uh, Nashville, Atlanta, I think, Washington D.C., and they they were feeling not very at home in the Southern Baptist Convention. They felt like Southern Baptists were too conservative. They, they had some beliefs they didn't really line up with. And, and these churches felt like, well, we're more moderate. And so they just didn't feel at home in the, in the Southern Baptist Convention. So they broke off in 1991. They broke off from the SBC. And they formed a new organization called the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship, or the CBF for short. Now, Ben, everybody with me? These are Southern Baptist churches, but they just don't... Man, I can't quite believe what they believe. So they break off and form the CBF. On July 9th of 1991, they issue their first public statement as an organization, and it had one theological statement in it. This is that statement. It says, The Bible neither claims or reveals inerrancy as a Christian teaching. In other words, they said, Look, we, we don't believe that the Bible is 100% accurate. We don't believe the Bible is 100% true. We believe a lot of it, but we just don't believe that. That was their one theological statement. By the way, I'm going to remind you again, these are Southern Baptist churches. So if you look at that, I put a little thing up here. If you look at that blue line, the blue line is what I call the plumb line. That's the Bible. And as churches, as individuals, we try to stay as close to that line as we can, don't we? And so the SBC is, is, is trying to get... No, nobody's perfect. We understand that. But the SBC tries to get as close to that plumb line as they can. The CBF says, you know what? We, we don't really believe that plumb line is, is 100% accurate. So we're going to move over here. Everybody with me so far? From its very beginning, they began to make some changes. And one of the very first things they did is they ordained women as pastors. They said, all right, we don't believe, we think that's old, that stuff Paul said, eh, 
That's just cultural. That's not for us today. So they began to affirm women as, as ordained ministers and pastors, okay? But it was very clear from the start, from the very beginning, it was clear that homosexuality would be the defining issue that, that made or break them, made them or, or broke them as an organization. Now, the SBC, in June of 2000, they revised, the Southern Baptist Convention revised their belief statement. And it was the first time in history that a major denomination had adopted a more conservative belief statement than they originally had. So they went, they, they met and they revised their belief statement and they explicitly defined the office of pastor as limited to men. They also reaffirmed the inerrancies of scripture and several other things. So the SBC said, you know what? We're going to get closer to this line. Everybody with me? We're, we're going to get as close to this line. We're going to hold on to this line, this plumb line with everything that we've got while the CBF was off a little bit. Now, the CBF, the one that broke away at that time, had a rule in place that precluded the hiring of non-celibate homosexualities as CBF staff. So if you were a homosexual and you were practicing, they would not hire you as part of their staff. So you couldn't be a secretary, you couldn't be a, a pastor, you could be anything. But as time's rolling along, as the years are going by, the seminaries are turning out more and more liberal pastors, liberal on social issues. And the pressure begins to grow internally on the CBF to make some changes. Uh, again, the, the, the pressure began to grow internally that the CBF would, would make become more liberal, specifically regarding homosexuality. And by the way, it was well understood the only reason they didn't was money. Because they knew that if they adopted homosexuals as pastors or homosexuals as, as these positions on their staff, that these churches would leave them. They would abandon them and they'd lose their money. And, and again, the conflict is going on. It's, it's mainly older people against younger people. And it's just this thing building and building and building as time goes by. By 2012, an elected moderator of the CBF would openly call for a removal of the policy forbidding the hiring of non-celibate homosexuals. And again and again, the, 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 the CBF just delayed and delayed and delayed and delayed and didn't do anything. As time went by, some of the CBF churches just said, you know what, we're going to do our own thing. And several of them just started affirming the homosexual lifestyle. Some of them even hired homosexual, openly homosexual practicing pastors. Now I want to remind you again, these were Southern Baptist churches. These aren't Episcopalians or some other. These are Southern Baptist churches. And now they're hiring homosexual pastors. Finally, in 2016, the CBF said, okay, we're going we're gonna to form this committee and we're going to go study the issue and we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna come out with a report. That report came out two weeks ago, which is what caused Albert Moeller to write this article. And it was like a bomb going off in the CBF. The report basically made everybody mad. It infuriated the homosexuals because it didn't go far enough. And it infuriated all the conservative people because it went too far. Its recommendations were absolutely ridiculous. The new policy allowed the CBF to hire openly gay CBF personnel in support positions, but you could not hire them as pastors or missionaries. It basically, within the CBF, created a dual morality. 
it says it creates one morality, homosexual is okay for all these 80% of the support positions, but it creates another morality, homosexuality is wrong for pastors and, um, and missionaries, or the other 20%. Now, let me ask you a question. Can you, this is not over, by the way, it still has to play out. It started in 91, here we are 27. Does everybody see where this is going? Does anybody have any idea how this is going to turn out? Do you know who's won? Listen, it's over. The homosexuals have won. By the way, they know they've won. It's just a matter of time before the, the old conservative people die out and all the new people. And But let me tell you, it was over in 1991. That's the point. It was over the moment they abandoned the plumb line of Scripture. That's when it was over. See, the fact is, once they moved off that line, it, 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 it was just a gradual drift. They're going to get further and further and further and further away until one day they look up and they're not even close to where they started. See, here's my point for you and I today. We come out of Genesis 1 and 2, and we've got these three great doctrines. We've got the doctrine of creationism that is under attack in our culture today. We've got the doctrine of marriage, which is under incredible attack in our culture today. We've got the doctrine of complementarianism, which is under incredible attack in our culture today. And see, here's my point. What happened to the CBF is exactly what can happen to you and me. You see, once we abandon the inerrancy of Scripture, we are doomed. I don't know any other way to tell you that. Once you abandon the inerrancy of Scripture, you are doomed. See, there may be things the Bible teaches that you don't like. And I won't ask you to raise your hand. See, you, let, let's take complementarianism as an example. You may be sitting here today and you say, you know what, I know women... That'd be a lot better, lot better teachers than you are. I know women that might be a lot better pastors than, than, than some of the men I know. And by the way, you might well be right. See, you may disagree that the Bible says, that Paul says, I do not allow a woman to teach or have authority over a man. You may say, you know what, I completely disagree with that. But let me tell you something. The same reinterpretation of the Bible that will allow for women pastors is the exact same reinterpretation of the Bible that will allow for an openly homosexual pastor. It's the same. Are you with me? See, you can go to the Bible. The Bible is as clear as a bell. I do not allow women to have authority or, 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 or teach or have authority over. It's, as, it's clear. You can't get away from it. You say, I, I may not like that. Okay. But it's the Bible. It, and it was, by the way, it was instituted pre-fall, as we've seen this morning. God has roles for men and women. And if you say, I don't like that, and I, I think that's just a cultural thing, and I'm going to go do what I want to do, you can do that. But I'm telling you, the same reinterpretation of Scripture that allows you to, to abandon complementarianism is the same reinterpretation of Scripture that will have you supporting homosexuality. Now, you may say to me, but I would never take that next step. I would never take that next step. Here's How do you know that? See, the fact is, guys, when you abandon that plumb line, you pulled up your anchor. Uh-oh. When you abandon that... I got, I got carried away. I'll get to it in just a second. 
back, back, back. Yeah, there we go. Okay. When you abandon that plumb line, you, uh, here's what I want you to see. You pulled up your anchor. You, you unanchored yourself from the Word of God. And do you know what happens? Any of you have ever been in a boat and you pull up the anchor, what starts happening? You start drifting. And it's slow at first. You know, a couple years may go by, five years may go by, and you're not that far from it. But as time goes by, you just move further, and it's real slow. You don't even know what's happening. If you're not paying attention, you got no idea it's happening. You look up one day, and you were a Southern Baptist church, and now I don't know what you are anymore. See, you were a confessing Christian that, that believed in the, in the tenets of Scripture, and now, ten years later, I don't know what you are. See, because you've lost your anchor, you don't know where you'll go. You can say, I'll never go there. But once your anchor's gone, you don't know where you'll go. Listen, I want to close with this today. Hold on to that Bible with everything you've got. Hold on to that Bible with everything you've got. You wrap your arms around it. You wrap your heart around it. You wrap your mind around it. And I don't care what it says, you believe it and you hang on to it and you'll be fine. But if you start abandoning this little thing and that little thing and this little thing, you've, you've thrown up your anchor and you're gone. You're doomed. Hang on to the Word of God. Listen, there's a lot of things in the I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come to chapter 3 next week, and I'll tell you, one of the hardest things for me to believe in is a talking snake. That's a hard thing to believe in. But I believe it with everything in my body because my Bible says it. I don't trust, I trust Him implicitly. He has done so much for me, and He said so many things. I, I, His glory has won me over. So I may come to the Word of God, and I see something I don't agree with, I don't like it, and I still say, all right, I believe in You, Lord. I trust You, Lord. You say it's good for me, I believe it. May not like it, may not wish it, I may wish it was different, but if You say it's a good thing, I believe You. I don't believe my mind, I don't believe my heart. I believe You. Hold on to that Bible with everything that you have. Because let me tell you, we're going to see this next week in chapter the. When Satan comes into the garden, what is the very first thing that he says? He says, did God actually say? The first thing he does is he questions the word. Did God actually say? See, that's why, by the way, that's how he's going to come to me and you. Did he really say? That women couldn't do that? Did, did he really say that, that you have to be in a marriage for life? Come on. He didn't really mean that. That's, that's, that's for the other people. That's not you. Did he really say? Did he really say? Did he really say? Hang on to the Word of God and, you, and you'll be fine. Let it go. Let go even a part of it. You don't know where you'll end up. Next week, we turn to chapter 3. We start with the fall. Uh, we're going we're gonna to talk about temptation, how Satan uh, worked with Eve. By the way, I can tell you Satan's a big believer. If, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. How, what worked with her works with you. It, it ain't, he don't have to change anything. He just does what he always does. We'll see that next week. Let's pray. Father.